Evening, everyone. Welcome to the OFD podcast. My name is Jude Seymour. I'm joined tonight by Brad Wechter and Bobby Norell. How are you guys tonight? Oh, just feeling great. Tuesday nights. Love them. I'm doing all right. Could feel better if Saturday went a little bit different, but I'm all right. Very fair. Uh, Josh is not with us tonight. He's got uh, work obligations, so it's just going to be the three of us talking, uh, recapping the Georgia game, mostly. Um, Bobby, you were down at the game. I would love to hear your thoughts about that stadium, the atmosphere, uh, your takeaway from the hospitality you may or may not have received from from Georgia fans. Uh, the ball is yours. Run with it. Tell us all about it. Of course. I mean, obviously, it was a great atmosphere. Um, I mean, it was obviously really loud, and I mean, it showed with the penalties, but. I did. I mean, my takeaway was it was nothing I hadn't seen before. Like I've been to Michigan, I've been to Michigan State. I, I mean, obviously night games in Notre Dame, and those are loud atmospheres too. So, I mean, it was loud, but it wasn't like oh my god, I've never seen this before. Um, so that was one thing I, because a lot of people are saying it was like the best atmosphere I've ever seen, and I just thought it was just another loud venue that I've I'd been to before, and that's nothing to like shit on George or anything. It was just that was my takeaway. Um, I, I was expecting uh, every. I mean, you hear everything about SEC tailgating and like how it's supposed to be the greatest thing in the world, but uh, I I was I I was expecting a lot more out of it. I mean, it's nothing. At least the Georgia campus is nothing like Notre Dame, where there's parking lots everywhere and just cars everywhere. I mean, it's a lot more. You need to like fight for parking there. So uh, I was I was a little disappointed about that. Um, but overall, it was a great atmosphere. I mean my girlfriend goes to Georgia. So I, I was treated a little bit better than probably some other people, but I mean, you do run into your assholes here, here and there, but for the most part, people treated the ND fans. Well, I thought so. Um, I had a good experience other than the outcome. So um, that was mostly my, my takeaway from the weekend. I have uh, two follow-up questions. One is what was the breakdown of Georgia fans to Notre Dame fans? Cause it looked like maybe 10% Notre Dame fans, but you, tell me. So um, the way they they distribute or distribute their like uh, visiting tickets is that they give them like if you're looking if you're looking at the game on the TV, uh, so the side that Notre Dame was on, the, Notre Dame fans got that whole upper deck, which is I guess around seventy five hundred tickets, um, and that whole section was mostly Notre Dame fans. Um, so you're probably right about 15 percent ND fans. Um, if I was sitting somewhere else in the stadium, it probably would have felt different, but just cause I was in the ND section, um, it, it was, it was all right. And then the other thing that I noticed was, or it was hard not to notice was the kind of the light show that they put on. I think they had some sort of pregame thing and then maybe a beginning of fourth quarter thing. What was yeah, that? They, um, I, well, they do have a tradition of, uh, they usually don't turn off the lights, but, um, like that everyone holds up their cell phones with their lights and they all like wave them or something to some song. Um, so that, I mean, that's something they do for most games, but they usually don't turn off the lights or do the light show. And I, I might, even though I'm, I'm pretty young, I might sound really old saying this. I thought the light show was kind of gimmicky, but I mean, it was, <laughs> it was a big, it was a big game. So they were trying to pull out all the stops. So, I mean, it is what it is. 
Yeah. Uh, I guess my last question for you is, um, is this something that you think could be um, replicated at Notre Dame Stadium? Not, not so much the, the gimmicky light stuff, but just the intensity of the crowd leading to affecting the outcome of the game. Because I think we can all agree it did affect the outcome of the game. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why it couldn't happen. I mean, there. I mean, the past couple night games outside of the Georgia game in 17 have been – really rowdy. I mean, the Michigan game last year was one of the loudest venues I've been at and one of the loudest games I've been at. So, I mean, it does happen at ND. It just, it's not, I don't think it has the reputation of Notre Dame stadium, I think takes away from some of those big games. I mean, did you get the sense that what you, uh, what the crowd was doing against Michigan in 2018 um, affected Michigan players as much as what the crowd in Georgia was doing affected Notre Dame players in 2019. Um, I mean, pro- I mean, probably not because I don't think Michigan had 12 penalties or and <laughs> what, how many how many false starts. But I mean, I do think Notre Dame in the past couple of years the Notre Dame crowd has been better than it, it it has been. So and bringing back night games and scheduling opponents like Michigan and and Georgia definitely gets the crowd more ramped up. So, I mean, you're probably not going to see, I mean, since it's a three 30 game on this Saturday, it might not be like, I mean, cause I, I was down at Athens two for the Murray state game and granted it was Murray state, but I mean, that wasn't the most raucous atmosphere either. So, I mean, it, it does depend on the game. So, um, so yeah. the night atmosphere and the opponent obviously play into the, the raucousness of it, which I think is absolutely fair. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, Brad, were you surprised? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I was just saying, in Notre Dame, I mean, that's a a once-in-a-lifetime opponent for Georgia fans. So, you know, they're – I mean, it's going to be more rowdy than your regular SEC game, I think, personally. Fair point. Uh, Brad, were you surprised at how discombobulated the Notre Dame offense looked at at certain points because of uh, what I can only assume was the crowd noise? No, not really. I mean, you got to imagine being in the very center of all that. I know Bobby doesn't seem super impressed, but I mean, just watching it on television, I was at a bar and I couldn't even hear it really, but it just looked insane. And you're in the middle of that. You're right smack dab. If you want to talk about acoustics and invisible design, right? Where all of that sound is coming from, of course, it's going to shake you. I mean, I, I played high school sports and gyms of a thousand people were scary at times so yeah i'm not surprised at all (laughs) um i almost think too maybe i'm wrong but i think once you get that first false start penalty you just want to cheer louder you know it's it's all about uh, you know it seems like maybe you maybe you didn't have any effect maybe it was I, i think brian kelly talked uh this week about how Cole Komet didn't realize they had switched from a uh, a single clap to maybe a, a silent count or some different uh, mechanism or whatever. So that's why he was drawn off a couple of times. Uh, first of all, I don't know. I don't know why you couldn't teach that to him after the first series. Hey, you know, uh, it's not a clap anymore. Uh, but uh, I just I, I thought it was, you know, it wasn't just it wasn't just the crowd noise. There were some line shifts that went on that that seemed to get the. Uh, the offensive line a little jumpy, but yeah. Uh, I, but I mean, so I'll, I'll get a little tinfoil hat here. Like from the perspective of the crowd, there's a whole lot of belief amongst all of those people just because of what the media was saying all, all week. 
and how Georgia was just going to boat race Notre Dame. And they started celebrating. It seems like fans and commentators who are pro SEC started celebrating on Wednesday. So that's, that's, they're hyped up. And, and so when Notre Dame looks like they're about to do something good, all you got to do is cheer because something bad's about to happen for Notre Dame. You just got to cheer. That's, and, and maybe that's not the reality of the situation, but we, we're not going to go very long without mentioning that in this podcast, I feel like. And I'll say I wasn't I wasn't not impressed. I was just I was mostly saying that it wasn't anything. I mean, I, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. Like it was just a it was a loud crowd. It wasn't just like holy shit, like this is incredible. I mean, it was just I just thought I had seen something like that before. So you weren't worried about the structural integrity of Sanford Stadium at that point, I guess. No, no, I wasn't. Well, one thing I, I do have one complaint, and that was where I was sitting. They ran, they ran out of, they ran out of everything in the concession stand, which is, it's like they didn't prepare for the game at all. Um, so that was, that's my one complaint about Sanford Stadium. Do they in Sanford Stadium? They do not. They're one of the few SEC schools that didn't oh. adopt it, but they did. They do serve it, but you have to be a donor of like fifty thousand dollars, and they only serve it in this one particular part of the stadium where you don't have a view of the game. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> steep price yeah. for beer. We yeah. thought nine bucks was bad. And, yeah, you may have I mean, beer, just go. You may not watch the game. <laughs> yes, like just go Google the story. Like it, it all came out in the summer where you can you can get alcohol in Sanford Stadium, but you need to be a huge donor, and they're going to serve it in this one spot where you can't watch the game. And it's bush light. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> probably. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the positives before we delve into more negatives. Uh, Bobby, obviously, you being at the game, Brad, Brad watching from a bar, and me at home. Um, what were your takeaways? What impressed you either in the initial watch or if you if you you bothered uh, with a with a rewatch? Uh, what were your takeaways? You can talk about players, you can talk about plays, you can talk about coaching or anything you want. But um, you know what uh, what was what was most positive? Brad, we'll start with you. Sure, um, I was really impressed with Cole Komet coming off the injury. Um, I penalties aside like that's another aspect of not having played yet this year and then going into that uh atmosphere and having to deal with that but i thought you know he he showed up and he was uh kind of spearheaded the toughness that notre dame played with uh and i was also really impressed with clark lee's defense um those open field tackles uh jeremiah i'm gonna mess his last name up we can call him that's fine awusu koromoa jeremiah awusu koromoa i didn't practice that but he made some plays and that's basically what his third game out there and he was beaten he was uh i I don't know if you if it was you that retweeted this but he was beating a fifth-year senior tight end to make a stop on a on a on a uh, screen and i thought that was incredible yeah bobby what did you see that you liked um i mean all week going into the game you thought everyone was saying that notre dame's run defense I mean, I mean, going into the game, it did suck, but the, I think they stepped up big. I mean, they held Georgia, who was running for 250, 300 yards a game, to 150, and even I mean, they held DeAndre Swift to under 100 yards, and his longest run was about 15 yards. So, I thought the run defense really showed up after being kind of trashed all week. Um, I thought uh, they overall, I didn't think they looked overmatched. I mean, people thought that it was going to be another Miami game or, or a game like that where they're just going to come out and lose 49, 10 or something like that. But they didn't, they never looked overmatched. I thought um, the other thing, other positive was I thought 
from be at the game. I don't know what it was like on TV or if you rewatched it, but I didn't think Book ever looked like flustered or ever looked like he just didn't have it. I mean, I thought he led led the team pretty well and gave him a shot to win at the end. And then obviously, like Brad said, I mean, Komet was awesome, and then also Claypool. I mean, you have two play for sure playmakers and those two guys. Yeah, um, just I don't want to repeat everything you guys said, but I, I do want to shine a little bit more of a spotlight on, on Claypool. You just briefly mentioned. I think everybody in the world knew that Chase Claypool is Ian Book's favorite target, and you know, it, it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to say I'm going to shut down a six four receiver. You know, with it with good hands and, and good point uh, high point and good body body skills and stuff. But uh, Claypool made a huge catch at the um, at the end of the game where he was basically falling out of bounds and managed to get, uh, you know, his it basically one foot down. Thanks for the brand. Um, <laughs> and, uh, make a catch and, and keep them in the in this game. Um, so I thought Chase Claypool had a, an outstanding day. Um, Ian Book, you know, being asked to throw 47 times is not, is not an easy proposition. I think um, there's still some things that just frustrate me in terms of his field vision. Um, well, maybe we'll talk about that in the negatives, but, um, with the exception of the, I think it was a first down interception that he really did not need to try to force. He could have just thrown the ball away. Um, I, I liked a lot of what Ian, Ian Book did, and obviously uh, he kept us in the game uh, at a time where, yeah, absolutely, that the, the, the narrative, and, and I fully admit I bought into it, was that it was going to spiral out of control and that, you know, that Notre Dame's offense would be hopeless against George's defense and, all, and more importantly, uh, Georgia's offense would be running roughshod over George, uh, Notre Dame's uh, beleaguered run defense. So, and that did not happen. So that was a positive. All right, let's turn to the other side of the coin. Bobby, we'll start with you this time. Uh, negatives that you saw, things that frustrated the hell out of you. Um, what, what was uh, what was kind of your damn? I wish we had done this differently kind of moment. So, I mean, even at at the game, this frustrated me, um, and. Uh, I thought the second half play calling, especially in the third quarter, was pretty uh, conservative. I mean, all week going into the game, everyone was saying if Notre Dame is going to have a chance, they're going to have to take some shots. And I, I don't think they didn't take enough. I didn't think they took enough shots down the field. Um, and yeah, you were lose. You didn't have some playmakers like like uh, Michael Young or Lindsey or guys like that. But I still think they should have taken some more shots in the third quarter because. By that time, Georgia had adjusted, and they knew that Notre Dame was trying to do all these short passes and sweeps, and it just wasn't working. Um, and then uh, the run offense, I, I mean, you ran for 46 yards on 14 rushes. So, I mean, those are two of the big negatives. And then, obviously, we talked about the penalties. Yeah. Brad, what did you uh, – what, what were your thoughts? Um, well, I don't want to steal your thunder about uh... – Book's field vision. So I'll just say he, he missed Boykin on a third down when Boykin had room. It was right before Georgia scored, I think, to go up by 10, and it would have been a huge play, and he just missed him. Um, so I, I think there's there's some things I think you, you'll probably touch on those with Book. Um, but to kind of piggyback on what Bobby said, uh, the running game, I wish Dexter Williams was still on this team. And, and maybe that's Jafar Armstrong when he's healthy and no shade at Tony Jones Jr. Cause I think he's a great back and he's a bruiser and, and, you know, he, he's a, he's a very good running back, but there's no, there's just no, you know, like dynamic electric. I mean, would you watch Deandre Swift jump over our linebackers one more time and wonder when the last time somebody 
from Notre Dame jumped over somebody. Like, I, I just, I, there's no big play threat out of the backfield. And then lastly, this is probably unfair to Chris Fink because he's being asked to fill in for Michael Young, who's injured while also playing his normal slot role. And that's not really, you know, something he's used to doing, but I, I don't, I don't think he's, I, I don't know. I struggle to say anything bad about Chris Fink because he's Chris Fink, but <laughs> there were some, there were some moments Saturday night where I was just like, you know, the, the interception that he bobbled and Georgia just took away from him. And then there were some drops and there were some, some other negative things from him, but you know, that's not his fault. Uh, you just said uh, Boykin. I'm going to give you a chance to clean that up. I, I'm guessing you meant Claypool there or. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, what, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know if we were getting into Ravens talk. If this became a Ravens talk podcast, I just wanted to know if we were switching. Wait, what, what, what did I say? I didn't prepare my Lamar Jackson uh, game notes, so uh, no worries. Um, I, I miss Miles Boykin too. Uh, so I, one- well, I, I was already talking about Dexter Williams. So I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here in 2018 thinking, "Hey guys, we're going to make the playoffs." Uh, so the one my thing God. I want to mention, and uh, Greg, friend of the podcast, Greg 2126 on uh, on Twitter. Uh, from UHND pointed out that on the uh, the third down play right before the half, uh, nine seconds remaining, uh, Chase Claypool is in single coverage at the top of the screen. Uh, Javon McKinley is at single coverage, but the safety is uh, leaning his way. And as soon as the ball is snapped, the, sna- the safety breaks over to Javon, uh, Javon McKinley's side. Now that is the wide side of the field uh, that was w- where there was more real estate to play around with. Um, but Chase Claypool against a, um, a, a regular cornerback when you have one play to basically run before the end of the half, uh, that's something that felt like a no brainer. You got to try, uh, Greg was suggesting like a back shoulder throw, like they did maybe almost like they did to, uh, Lawrence Cager. I think his name is Lawrence Cager, right? Uh, that's what from Georgia. so, uh, I think his name is Miles Boykin. Miles, his name is Mark Boykin, and he's he's unstoppable. Uh, <laughs> same guy that lit us up in uh, when he was on Miami in 2017. So, uh, Cager is definitely the right name. I'm I'm stumped. I'm stumped on the first name, but uh, that's Lawrence. Okay. Yeah, you're you're right on Lawrence. Okay, Lawrence, perfect. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate that. So that was supremely frustrating. Uh, the one thing that I think one of you guys mentioned that I wanted to also emphasize was. I feel like uh, Clark Lee especially is good at second half adjustments, getting in at halftime and sort of adjusting. I felt like, uh, I think Bobby said Chip Long's play calling was a little conservative. I felt like they didn't understand how Georgia had adjusted to their offense. And I know that they were limited and I don't blame them for not trying to run the ball more because I, I think it was painfully obvious that running the ball was not going to work. Um, but either was uh faking the run with a uh flea flicker that seemed like oh. a that seemed like a terrible oh my god that was no, and ter- that was the I, interception that was, yeah that no. was a ter- that was a terrible call i mean if you want to get creative probably fl- you could have done something different than a flea flicker cuz like you said the running game was not you weren't fooling anybody with that absolutely so all right, we've talked about the positives and negatives in the game atmosphere. Um, I do have a couple other topics I want to talk to you about, but first, let's take a short commercial break. All right, guys, we're back. Um, one of the things that has kind of uh, 
permanently damaged my psyche. And I, and I, th- I think I'm excusing myself for predicting a 38-17 Georgia win is just that Notre Dame doesn't ever seem to win these games. Um, it's not always that they're blown out, but when there's a, a high-profile game on um, that seems to be, you know, pitting two top ten teams or – you know, uh, either, either Notre Dame's ranked or no, they're not ranked, but they're, they're facing a good team and always when it's on the road or at a neutral site, um, it never seems to go Notre Dame's way. I think we can probably cherry pick some examples. Uh, I think Stanford was probably close to a top 10 team last year when we played them, although they didn't act like a top 10 team, uh, Michigan became sort of a top 10 team. Um, so you could probably, you could probably rebut this a little bit, but I guess my general question to you guys is why doesn't Notre Dame ever seem to win one of these games? Why are we perpetually always talking about a real close one point loss or a six point loss or a four point loss instead of getting over the hump? What do you think is, is it is truly needed? Uh, Bobby, let's start with you. Um, yeah. So I was, I was thinking about this and I don't really know if there is a specific reason. Like, um, before before Clemson broke down the door and has become a powerhouse, and even if you talk to Georgia fans, they ha- kind of had the same feeling going into big games. But they would lose they would lose these big games, and it became known as Clemsoning. And then they finally beat Notre Dame in 2015, and then it seems like they just haven't won anything in sight since then. So I don't think I don't know if there's a specific reason. I just think that one of these days Notre Dame is going to win that game. They'll break down that door and. And it will it all change. I just I don't know if there is a specific reason for losing a one point or a one touchdown game on the road. Basically, every time you play it, Brad, do you think uh, do you think that you kind of have the same permacloud over your head that when you look at these games, you just automatically assume that Notre Dame's going to lose, or, or do you tr- do you treat them as as hopeful events until proven otherwise? Well, if anybody knows me, they know what an optimist I am. That's sarcasm. Um, Yeah, you know, I, I think I've just, I've just been from watching this team for so long. You just, you end up wired to expect the worst but hope for the best. And at some point, you realize that expecting the best is expecting or hoping for the best. Excuse me, is hoping for a close loss on the road. But I think a lot. I think with that said. There's also an aspect of chance and luck and the fact that that's how this sport goes. And it's a really tough thing to go on the road at night. And that's what Notre Dame does because they're a national brand and go play at Clemson, go play at Georgia, go play at Michigan. Like these are difficult games. Other teams, I mean, the SEC teams will go play these games against SEC opponents where they play all the time and they know the teams. These are non-conference games against marquee opponents with everyone's eyes on you and half the time everyone's saying you don't have a shot. So, I mean, what, what is the best we can hope for? I, I, I think Bobby's going to be more optimistic than me when he says that someday they'll start winning these games. I think this is just reality. I think it's, I think we're playing a different game than everybody else. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I'm curious your take when Rodrigo Blankenship hit the, his umpteenth field goal to make it 23, 10, I felt at that point, zero, zero, chance that Notre Dame was going to get back and and actually win the game. And even when they scored the touchdown, I still felt zero. I mean, did Bobby be in there? Did you feel this glimmer of hope? Like, okay, we've got the ball. It's under two minutes left. Like we can do this. Or was it kind of like, here we go again. Um, When he, when he hit the field goal to make it 23, 10 and just throughout the third quarter, you could just see it. 
you could see it going south, but then they were down 23-10 and they scored the touchdown. And then all of a sudden you felt a little bit better. And then they got the, the three and out and then he shanked the punt. And then you're like, I, at that point I was like, Oh my God, this is going to happen. Like Georgia's pulling to Georgia. Uh, so okay, you started to believe that's good. Yeah. So I, I did start to believe. And then it would have been nice to have some of those timeouts because on that fourth down, he could have called a timeout instead of a play instead of just going out there and running a play. But um but yeah, I mean, I did have I did have hope once they scored the touchdown to make it twenty three six or twenty three seventeen. And when uh, when the Georgia punters shanked the punt after the three and out, did you did you start to believe too, or were you just like, uh, I can't get my hopes up? I've seen this play too many times. I started to pay attention again. That's that's how I'll put that because you know we I, it was a Notre Dame bar. There were a ton of Notre Dame people around. You know, we're all kind of feeling the same thing when you got that many people in a room um, and you're you know drinking um you you just you don't we, we all felt the same way and then you know it started to turn into well this game's gonna end so we all started just kind of hanging out talking and ordered another drink and then the next thing you know the the um the punter shanks it and everybody's glued to the tv again so there was a little bit of excitement there was a little bit of hope but i don't think anyone there was sober so <laughs> as an aside um every at the end of every game uh the day after a couple days after i publish a it was over when uh, you know it's a kind of a beyond yeah. box score to, to steal a phrase uh, it was over when and uh you know people get really upset when you when you talk to them about win probabilities um computers are they don't have emotions and they don't feel they don't feel uh you know like Oh well, you weren't watching the game. Like the momentum was turning. You know what I mean? Like, um, so computers just say, "Okay, well, give me every instance where this this situation has occurred." You know, the the team is down by a certain X number of points. It's you know this down and th this to go, and this is where they are field position wise, and this is how many how much time's left on the clock. And I will tell you how many times that team ever wins. And the thing is, Notre Dame. Like was in a position where nobody had ever won that game from the position that they were in. So it 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 it, it, it makes people it drives people nuts because they're looking at the game saying it's a six point game. How could you say they're out of the game? And and I don't know how to tell them. And I think it's kind of rude for me to tell them like, well, the computer says nobody's ever won in this situation. But like that's I mean I think that's also helps you keep a perspective about these things. That well, it would be great. It would also be historic. It would also be something that we haven't seen, um, you know, in the history of modern college football. So I think that's something to keep in mind is uh, I think watching these win probabilities throughout the game has helped me keep a perspective about whether or not somebody is truly going to do that thing that I really want them to do. I mean, this this might sound like a really stupid reason why I have hope when they ever get down big, but whenever they get down big in these games, I always think back to the 2006 Michigan State game when they had no business winning that game and they came all the way back. So every, I mean, I just always think about that game like, oh, maybe they'll maybe they'll do it again, even though this is 13 years later. But I mean, it's always in the back of my mind in those type of games. And, and that's 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 great, and that was a, a great all-time meltdown by Michigan State. But I mean, <laughs> yep. the genesis of that was started in what the early third quarter, or maybe even the late second quarter, in terms of when the comeback started. Uh, you know, just in the fourth quarter with five minutes left, when you're down by two scores, that's a that's a tall task for any team. 
You know, Alabama yeah. would be hard po- poised to. Uh, in fact, the computer says Alabama wouldn't even do it. So, um, it just, I, I don't know. I, I, I want to have hope, but it's been beaten out of me so many times. I think actually, to be honest with you, 2011 Michigan permanently broke my brain. The idea that they'd be up 24 seven going into the fourth quarter and not win that game just seems unfathomable to me. So that was terrible. Yeah. So I think, I think maybe I'm just, I'm now preconditioned uh, to, <laughs> to accept the worst. And it, you know, it's funny because when people, complain about this i always say well ohio state could probably use a couple more fans if you don't if you didn't sign up for this suffering you don't have to endure it Um, (laughs) yeah you know it's 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 a special kind of um pain that notre dame fans put themselves through uh with these with these big games i think all right well that's all we have to say about that topic so um i just want one final topic before we get out and close out for the night uh unless you guys have something else you want to talk about um I know none of us own crystal balls. If we did, we would be much more rich and probably not sitting here talking to each other. But uh, And I know that there's a lot of football to be played. But let's uh, go ahead and just make a wild assumption that Notre Dame goes ahead and runs the table and finishes 11-1. There's obviously no conference championship to play for. Um, that's not to discount the games ahead of us. I think Virginia is going to be a tough task this, this weekend. Um, Michigan is still Michigan, even though they their offense looks horrid. Um, you know, you never know uh, if USC with their third string quarterback or possibly their second coming back uh, could do could do some damage. And we still haven't won in Stanford and Stanford and Palo Alto since two thousand seven. So um, eleven and one is not a a done deal. But let's just say they finish eleven and one. I know that we don't know how the other teams finish out, but do you think? a resume in which they've won 11 games and lost to Georgia by six points is going to be enough to get them uh, considered for inclusion in the college football playoff. If you were had, if you had to uh, guess one way or another. Um, I mean, I, are we just talking about consideration? Cause I definitely think an 11 and one Notre Dame team that lost by a touchdown on the road at Georgia would be enough for consideration. I mean, we saw it, in 2015, if they don't lose to Stanford out there, they were definitely in consideration for that. So, and I, I think uh, the Notre Dame basketball SID actually tweeted this the other day that uh, when 2014, when they lost to Florida State, they still entered November in a play in the top five or six in the in the playoff rankings. And then it was also the same thing when they lost to Clemson in 15. So I definitely think that they would be in consideration for a spot if they go in 11 and one. Obviously things would have to fall their way to get in the top four, but I definitely think 11 and one would definitely warrant consideration. Brad, do you buy into the narrative that's been perpetuated by like Pete Sampson over at Irish Illustrate? I'm sorry, the athletic um, that of the one loss that that Notre Dame could have afforded to have, it couldn't have been to Georgia because you need to basically have a kill shot on one of these sec teams because it'll probably come down to two sec teams at the end of the year. Yeah, I think that take is validated by the fact that Michigan is apparently not very good. I think if last year, if the Michigan that people think that lost to Notre Dame that people still think should be in the playoffs if they beat Ohio State, if that's the team you get your kill shot on, then fine. But Michigan's not that team this year, and I don't know if Stanford will be or not. And uh, USC's up and down, so 
yeah, I mean, that's that's now that we sit here behind the Georgia game looking back at what happened, I think that's it's sort of a valid take. But I think it's also sort of an ignorant take to have ahead of that game and ahead of the Michigan-Wisconsin game. So the, I guess the one thing is we uh, fought so hard to defeat the narrative that was perpetuated that a 12-0 and Notre Dame was not worthy for playoff inclusion last year. And then Notre Dame went out and, and sort of laid an egg in the Cotton Bowl. Do you feel like, and I know it's not supposed to have any bearing, but Bobby, do you feel like it will have a bearing if it comes down to Notre Dame or another team for the fourth spot? Do you think that 30-3 to result will have any bearing on whether the college football playoff committee ultimately picks Notre Dame? Um, I mean, I, I would hope that it wouldn't, but I would not be surprised. And they would never come out and say it, but I definitely think it would probably be in the back of the those the committee's mind that yeah i mean i would i would agree with that that it would be in the back of their mind and might sway their uh decision even though it, it shouldn't well here's my question on this subject do you think it weighs their decision on notre dame more than it would say michigan state or washington who have also gotten their asses kicked in the college football playoff i uh, yeah just because it's notre dame's bet it's happened so many times that notre dame's gone to one of these big bowl games and got their ass beat that um, it doesn't happen to Washington or Michigan State every time they play in a bowl. I mean, I mean Washington almost beat Ohio State in the Rose Bowl last year, and Michigan State's won a Rose Bowl before. So I definitely think it weighs more for Notre Dame, especially because the lights are always on Notre Dame, and everyone cares, and everyone likes to hate Notre Dame. So, um, yeah, I think I, it would matter more for Notre Dame. I think it's a pr- completely valid question. You know, when Ohio State got blanked by Clemson, thirty-one nothing. You know, should should that have should that have affected them? Uh, I think that you know what Bobby's saying. I agree with because of a recency bias. You know, you have basically the makeup of the two thousand eighteen team here. A lot of returning stars. I mean, obviously Jerry Tillery, Tavon Coney, um, you know, uh, Drew Tranquil, Miles Boykin, Julian Love are all gone. Um, but this is this fun. This feels a lot like the 2018 team in, in, in of its composition, and um, I think that I I think they're human beings, and I think that they want competitive matchups. And lopsided results have been far too far too frequent in the uh, college football playoff, despite their best efforts. And so, if it comes down to uh, to Notre Dame and another deserving team. Um, who doesn't have, who doesn't bear the scars of, of a 2018 blowout, then I almost think that they hand it to, uh, to that other team. Uh, but, you know, obviously who can say, right? Um, at this point, it's hard to say who's going to get left out in the cold. Um, you know, the, when, the one thing I remember about going to the Texas Notre Dame game in 2016 was those teams both looked like world beaters. And then Notre Dame finished four and eight, and Texas finished, I think, five and seven. So they were just really equally matched uh, teams for each other, uh, but they weren't actually great teams. So I don't know. You know, this whole thing could come apart for Georgia. It could come apart for Notre Dame. It could come apart for both teams. And we could have seen a great game between um, two two elite teams, or we could have seen a, a great game between two teams that are about nine and three and ten, or ten and two. Uh, I, I just don't think we have enough information at this point. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. I mean, in 2017, when they played, both teams were in the – I mean, Georgia obviously made the playoff. Notre Dame was in the playoff discussion until they laid an egg in Miami. So, I mean, definitely I think both teams are – I think it's more of a both teams are good than your 2016 Texas uh, example where both teams were probably just equally as shitty. 
Um, so, yeah. Um, one last question before I leave you, and it's kind of tangentially related to this. Uh, what is your feelings about rooting for Michigan and or USC to be good so that when Notre Dame plays them, that is a win. Uh, if they beat them, is it's a quality win. Do you have feeling? you have strong feelings about that? That um, Yeah, I mean, it, it, it hurts, but, I mean, you kind of have to do it. I mean, so. You absolutely do not have to do it, Bobby. I guess there, I have no obligation, but if I want Notre Dame to have their best shot, I guess Michigan and USC need to be de- good teams. But it would definitely hurt to pull for them. I mean, I had no – I was not sad to see Michigan just get destroyed last Saturday. I'll say that. I was not also very not sad, Brad. <laughs> how, how do you how do you feel? Do you want do you want them to be good so that when Notre Dame beats them, they've beaten a good team? I you know I'm pretty indifferent. Okay. I, I my I don't watch their games when they're not playing Notre Dame. I don't really care. Um, aside from when they're playing Notre Dame, and or if they're or if they lost to Notre Dame and people think they should be in the playoff over Notre Dame. That's the second time I've mentioned that now. But I think it's just like, you know, if they're good, they're good. If I still want to beat them. If they're not good, then I want to beat them. Like, that's – it's just as fun for me to watch Notre Dame beat Michigan 37 nothing as it is to have them be good and Notre Dame still beat them. And then if they're really good and they beat Notre Dame, then I'm upset. I will say anecdotally, uh, I did, uh, you know, over the summer, I, I kind of tweeted out the top 10 um, wins of the Brian Kelly or my my best best Brian Kelly wins, uh, you know, at Notre Dame. And I, I did receive a lot of people that said, uh, why is in 2014 Michigan on the list? And they weren't very satisfied with my response of, well, that was a five and seven team that they beat. It's not it was a it was a win. It was a satisfying win. I love watching that game. But um, you know, in terms of best wins, that wasn't really a best win or whatever. Um, so I think that there's, I think to Brad's point, there's joy in beating Michigan, whether they're, they're down, uh, up, down, or, or kind of midland. Um, so I, I, my, my personal feeling, and I think I stole this from, uh, Alan Wazalewski, who's the, uh, SID aforementioned Notre Dame men's basketball SID. Um, you don't root for those teams. But you acknowledge that them winning uh, can help Notre Dame in, in some respect, especially after Notre Dame beats them. So that's sure. that's what I do. Uh, um, I, I take great joy in, and maybe it's shred and fraud, but I take great joy in watching uh, Michigan get pummeled by uh, Wisconsin. <laughs> and I would do it all over again every single week if we were <laughs> the opportunity. So uh, that's how I how I shake out on that. Uh, I kind of have a question. Yeah. But last year, after I mean, when Michigan took off and they were going to that Ohio State game, ten and one, going to that Ohio State game, you could look at their schedule and say they really hadn't beaten anybody. That but they looked so dominant doing it. So if Notre Dame does that and Michigan finishes nine and three, and USC finishes nine and three, eight and four, something like that, do you think those would still be looked at as good wins if Notre Dame does it in a dominant fashion? I mean, I look if Michigan finishes nine and three, that means that you know, okay, so they've lost to Wisconsin, they've lost to probably Ohio State at that point, and then they lost to Notre Dame, right? So those are the yeah. three losses. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm I, trying to think about who else is – then that means they've beaten Penn State, so that's a good win. I'm just trying to think about, you know, what what who Michigan might have beaten at that point. You know what I mean? But, uh, I mean, Penn State and Michigan State would be their, their best – the best two wins, I guess. Right. You know, again, there's – I like – you know, they never they say, oh, it doesn't matter, margin of victory or whatever. But it, it's it's psychological. You know, we took a lot of flack for uh, barely beating Vanderbilt and barely beating Ball State. And the, and the second most annoying narrative last year, uh, besides, well, maybe Michigan is actually better than Notre Dame, despite that week one result, was, hey, you guys barely beat Vanderbilt. You barely beat Ball State. You should have crushed them, right? So uh, taking any team to the proverbial woodshed is great. And I think Beating a nine and three team by twenty one points would uh, look be you know would be much more favorable than you know escaping with a with a two point win. At the end of the day, a win is a win. Um, but you know, especially when it comes down to say common opponents, you know, say we're being matched up against uh, you know Ohio Staters or Wisconsin or somebody, and it's like okay, Wisconsin beat um michigan by 21 points what did notre dame do notre dame beat them by 28 points you know that kind of stuff i think helps in terms of uh, solidifying the case that you should take a non-conference champion over perhaps even a conference champion you know so uh you know maybe a two loss conference champion versus a one loss notre dame so um yeah i i look run run up the score and run them up on on good teams Uh, that's that's fine I think I think Virginia has a, a real chance to be a great team this year. They could be the uh, the representative that plays uh, Clemson in the ACC uh, championship game this year. So, um, so I would love to see that Notre Dame just really just you know pull them apart this weekend and, uh, and and run it up because I think that will only help. Because if if Virginia finishes say nine and three and loses to Clemson in the you know ACC championship game then yeah. you can say, look, I mean, it's the Northwestern argument all over again, right? Like yeah. we beat Northwestern by 10 at their home field and they got, they made it to the big 10 final and they weren't very competitive, but it was still a big 10 finalist, you know? I mean, they kind of did the same thing to St- Syracuse last year where Syracuse was the top 15 team and they destroyed them. So. Yeah. And I think that that's a win that's, that's not that really that's taken for granted because people think, Oh, Syracuse or whatever, but you know, Syracuse finished the season with, uh, I believe it was 10 wins after the camping bowl wins. So it was either nine yeah. or 10. So they did really yeah. great. And you're right. They finished in the top 15. So, all right, gents, that's all I've got for tonight. Is there anything else you want to add for the good of the order? Oh, I'm I good. Um, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. All right. Go Irish. Go ahead, Bob. Irish. Irish. No. Yeah. I was just saying. I was going to say go Irish. So you're you're ahead of you're ahead you're ahead of me. We are unanimous in our desire to see the Irish go. Uh, Be Cavaliers. We'll talk to you uh, later this week, and we'll be uh, previewing Virginia, and hopefully our Supreme Warlord Josh will will return to us. Uh, For Bob, Bobby, and uh, Brad, I'm Jude, and have a good night, everyone.